Raja Pinks. You are listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are indeed listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back to another week. This is kind of a laid-back week. It's also a surprising week. Brian decided not to be here today. He's claiming he's sick. But do any of us really believe him? I think not. So anybody looking for the Star Wars uh, countdown today? Sorry, we're blaming Brian that we don't have it. Uh, But one of my favorite Steves is our sound engineer today. So anything that gets screwed up, we know who to blame. And since we are live, and since we're doing a lot of clips, to interview clips today, some of which have profanity in them, hopefully we're going to get all of that out. <laughs> so we're keeping our fingers crossed. So if by some chance we don't, please don't hate us. We're doing our very best here. Um, but welcome, welcome. We're getting ever closer to the Academy Awards. The BAFTAs were just last night. The Grammys were last night. Um, as to be expected, La La Land uh, picked up some more hardware at the BAFTAs, which uh, could prove interesting for come Oscar time. And Oscar voting open today. So all you Academy members, get your votes in uh, for the Spirit Award nominee uh, members out there, Film Independent members. Voting is still open for the Spirit Awards. So get your votes in. Uh, and then, of course, things are starting to take shape also for the upcoming TCM Film Festival uh, to be held in Hollywood on April 6th through 9th. So we got stuff happening everywhere. And I'm going to cover as much of it as I possibly can. But right now we're going we're gonna to focus on today's kind of kickback show. Next, year, next week we get unkicked back uh, because love, love our guys at Formosa Group. Uh, and all their sound work. As a matter of fact, one of the films that we're going to talk about and you're going to hear from the director on later in the show today uh, is John Wick Chapter 2, which Mark Steckinger, supervising sound editor on. Uh, Mark is one of Formosa Group's go-to guys. So I'm very excited uh, that you're going to get to hear everything that John Wick director Chad Stileski had to, has to say about Mark and the work that he does. Uh, and then maybe one of his colleagues uh, next week, who uh, Ken Carmen is going to be here, a music editor. Uh, maybe we can, we can get Ken to spill the beans on some of his colleagues and cohorts over at Formosa. But today, you know, I've been holding on to this interview. I, I had the good fortune to sit down for an exclusive interview with... Damien Chazelle, writer-director of La La Land. You have all heard me rave about La La Land even before it came out and since it came out. It is a celebration of Hollywood. It is a celebration of the movie musical. And all classic film fans will will easily recognize on many fronts the influences from classic Hollywood there are scenes that you can pinpoint as an homage coming out of Singing in the Rain. Uh, real Los Angelinos uh, who know the, the region well will recognize the beloved Smokehouse restaurant up on Barham in Burbank across from Warner Brothers. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's so much happening in La La Land that is Hollywood gold. 
and gold from a classic era that has now been brought into the 21st century by Damien Chazelle. And for me, it was being such a a musical nerd uh, about cinema musicals. I mean, my master's thesis, as many of you know, was actually on the MGM Hollywood movie musical, uh, a genre that is totally owned by Hollywood. This was not imported from Germany or from anywhere else. Uh, the musical was born here in Hollywood. And uh, to be able to have a chance to sit down with Damien, who has an equal love of the genre and the history, was a real treat. So I'm going to do something that we have not done on Behind the Lens. But for just a few minutes of personal chatter between Damien and myself, you're going to get to hear our entire interview uh, straight on through, which will answer a lot of questions for many of you who ask, well, how come you don't always include the question? Because as you listen and anybody familiar with the show, in the conversations with our live guests, there's never a question and answer period. It's always about a conversation, a conversation about film, a conversation about the making of film, about the elements of film, a conversation about a common love of film. So here you can all listen to the my exclusive interview with Damien Chazelle as we talk about our common love of the movie musical and of La La Land. And I had started off the interview showing him, he asked me, what did I think? And I said, well, here, here was my immediate reaction that I sent to the distributor. And here we go. Musical is alive and well. That's thank you for saying that because I'm, I'm you know, I, I, as someone who's been so sick of you know the past decade or whatever of people saying musicals are dead, just like no, no, no they're not. Maybe they're sleeping occasionally, but but well, they're still being made and they still can be made and uh, and I think they're still as relevant as ever, if not more so. I think I think extremely so, and and the timing of La La Land is so key. You know, a lot of people don't realize that Shirley Temple became a star because of the depression of yeah. Franklin Roosevelt. Right. Issued, he Same. issued that executive order. Yeah. You had to make happy happy yeah. movies, Same. song Same and dance Fred movies. Fred and Ginger, same thing. I mean, the musical in many ways came of age in the depression. That's that's so, just, yeah. and, you know, in especially this year, such a turbulent time. Yeah. It, Which, of course, I didn't I didn't plan on. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't part of my no, plan. But, <laughs> but, okay, maybe Arthur Freed and the musical Gods Above had something to do with <laughs> it. Oh, great. I don't, know if that was, I don't know if that was worth it then. Arthur might have stepped a little too far. <laughs> you might thanks, have. Thanks for trying to help. But, uh. yeah, what? <laughs> this store, it's sweet, it's old-fashioned, it's enchanting. Where did, how did you, what came first, the idea for the musical or the idea for the story? Uh, the idea for the musical um, and the idea for trying to do an old-fashioned musical that would feel new. Mm-hmm. Try to kind of do it in a in the sort of unironic, unapologetic way that old MGM musicals mm-hmm. did it, but um, to set it in contemporary uh, you know, contemporary in contemporary LA, contemporary reality, uh, a city that you don't often think of as actually all that romantic, mm-hmm. um, and you know, people kind of struggling uh, day in day out with sometimes very ordinary problems, just ordinary people, 
um, and, and their lives and do it in a very realistic yet fantastical way. So mm-hmm. to combine those two things, that's where it came from first. Mm-hmm. Now, something that really helps with this film, and I kept thinking Norma Kalmus through the whole movie, every every frame, really? it's like, oh my God, oh my God, because <laughs> Norma, every single Technicolor film ever made. Yeah, the the uh, I remember watching, um, there's a great documentary, uh, it's like a special feature and something, I think the Blu-ray of The Adventures of Robin Hood, um, when they released that on Blu-ray, the, you know, the Beryl Flynn mm-hmm. one, and... Uh, and they were talking about the whole history of, I mean, that's one of the most beautiful color, you know, pieces of color photography in history and talking about just the history of Technicolor and Eastman Color and um, um, and 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 how obviously technical it was at the outset. But I just loved, I became very enamored with this idea that color was a choice and a, and a production in and of itself. So that forced you to really think about color. Mm-hmm. And I think people in those movies thought about color palette more than we do mm-hmm. today because we take it for granted now, you know. Um, but back when most movies were black and white, if you were to shoot a movie in color, you had to make it count. And I yeah. want this movie to make it count. And, and you definitely succeed. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, the sunset, the dance, mm-hmm. uh, the dance against the sunset, and the the pinks and oranges, it's right out of Singing in the Rain with Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden on the soundstage where he's setting the whole mood with that pink and orange yeah. in the background. Yeah. So I, I, the, the the fun thing there was like trying you know walking around LA seeing real sunsets and going wow that sunset looks just like the painted backdrop in Singing in the Rain or the painted mm-hmm. backdrop in you know American in Paris or Star is Born or something it's mm-hmm. like these movies that used to be shot mainly on sound stages yeah um, so beautifully um, Lena Sangre my DP and I we always talked about like is there a way to do that in real in, in mm-hmm. real life is there a way to to have the same kind of colors, same yeah. kind of magic, same kind of fakery. Because we mm-hmm. loved also that those movies would do painted backdrops and not try yeah. to make them look real. Actually indulge in the fact that they're yeah. fake and have fun with that. Um, but if we could do that, if we could make a real L.A. sky look fake, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just about shooting it at the right time of day. It's really well, amazing. yeah, and the fact that you went with, with anamorphic, and then, of course, you had specially ground lenses yeah, yeah. to really celebrate, you know, the panavistic. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Linus, uh, yeah, I mean, he, Linus is a genius. Linus is at, beyond at, a genius. At, 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 yeah. Have you, ta- have you gone to talk to him? I haven't talked. So I've spoken with him in the past. In the past, yeah. But he, he's off in London shooting, which is kind of great after this movie, shooting The Nutcracker. So uh, I think he's having a good time. Uh, I pretty much a lot bet. Of paint, a lot of painted steps on that one. I bet he's having the time of his life yeah. because he loves color. Yeah. You know, and here you made very conscious choices, and I find this interesting because you've got your primary colors. You've got mm-hmm. red, yellow, and blue. Yeah. Very vibrant, very yeah. live in your production design, in your costuming. But then you also throw colored lighting on top of that mm-hmm. in many sequences. How challenging is that conceptually for you to achieve, you know, the movie, the movie painterly look mm-hmm. and the surrealism, but still have it find that right blend so yeah. that it looks okay? Yeah. Um, I mean, Linus and I found, uh, I mean, we actually spent a whole week, uh, deep, you know, early in prep. Linus, uh, Mary, Zoffrey's the costume designer, David Wasco, the production designer. All of us just sat around a table, went through each page of the script, and talked about the color palette in each scene. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and very minutely, down to, like, the color of Emma's pencil and the notebook and, like, the color in her coffee shop of what her apron would be and Ryan's, you know, uh, uh, everything about Ryan's apartment and his coffee mug and, you know, just trying to really think it through. And then... Um, and then, you know, so a lot so a lot of the colors, you know, one thing you learn kind of um, getting into 
when you're really trying to think about color in film is you, you first start thinking of it as just a DP's job, and you as you get into it, you realize it's, it's just as much, obviously, costume designer, production yeah. designer's job. They have to be actually providing the color material, and then Linus figures out how to shoot it. Um, so a lot of the times we would just be, you know, Linus would be shooting things actually somewhat naturalistically, uh, with, you know, with this wonderful European sense he has of how to tease out the magic in everyday mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and then other times, yeah, he would be doing these very theatrical lighting effects, but it was always, even the theatrical stuff had to feel natural. And that's, mm-hmm. that to me is the special genius of Linus, is that he's able to go as far out as you can possibly go within yeah. fantasy um, and theatrical effects, and yet always make it feel somehow homemade. Um, we never wanted anything this, in this movie to feel too VFXy. Everything was done mm-hmm. practically. I mean, literally everything, you know, with the exception of, of, you know, outer space stuff when they're in space, was done entirely practically. Um, mm-hmm. Even stuff you would normally do with VFX. Um, a lot of that, you know, the sunsets, you know, obviously included. And, and um, yeah, so it was just a matter of, like, really trying to... And then sometimes limit the color palette within a scene. Sometimes another misconception you have is, oh, I want the movie to be really colorful. So you just throw a ton of color on screen. All the different colors of the rainbow. You wind up having a shot that doesn't feel colorful. Whereas if you really limit, if you say, this shot is going to be blue and red, you know, this shot is going to be yellow and green. That's something I really learned from Vincent Minnelli, especially, Mm -hmm. is that idea of that, that the the vibrancy of colors rests entirely in counterpoint of Mm -hmm. those colors. And the, 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 the less colors you're counterpointing, and the stronger the choices you're making in each of those colors that you're counterpointing, Mm -hmm. the more you feel it. Mm -hmm. So... Just things like that that you kind of learn in the doing and in the researching that we well, tried to apply. Yeah, and one of the most spectacular scenes is, of course, that final nine-minute montage, mm-hmm. and Tom Cross's editing is just... Yeah, he's... Uh, from the opening dance sequence, your editing, your shooting of that and the editing of that to that nine-minute montage, mm-hmm. that, that could be its own short film. Well, it's funny you say that, because that was the first thing in the editing room Tom and I started with. Is We did the same thing on Whiplash, because we knew both both movies, you know... And with a kind of sustained, uh, very editing-heavy set piece, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and they're kind of what the whole movie is about. So, uh, so we we started off in the editing room with that sequence. We went, mm-hmm. okay, let's figure that out. And let's almost make it a short film of its own, uh, make it as perfect as we feel it can be, and then. Once we crafted, once we felt like we had edited and polished the last ten minutes of the movie, then we went back and tried to earn it. Mm-hmm. So Tom, um, Tom knows that way of working, and uh, but yeah, he's brilliant. I mean, he's just uh, and 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 what I love about Tom too, even though he's not a musician, I, I used to be a musician. Tom is not, but he's the most musical editor mm-hmm. I've ever known. Um, even though he hasn't yeah, played music, he film, gets music. The editing has a very lyrical ebb and flow to mm-hmm. it. And you feel that slow to fast, yeah. From, you know exactly curves to straight angles. He's very, yeah, yeah, exactly. Does that help? And with this film, because it is a musical, and it isn't music that just stuck in there. It is interwoven in true musical mm-hmm. fashion yeah. as part of the story. Mm-hmm. How helpful is it to you to have somebody like Marius come in as your music producer on it? It was amazing. I mean, he. Uh, um, so, I mean, first, for a few years, I'd been, um, you know, I, I've known Justin Hurwitz, the composer, since college, and so he had written all the music, um, and then we needed someone to actually help us, uh, you know, uh, uh, actually make, make this a reality in terms of, like, getting the infrastructure set up for how we were actually going mm-hmm. to record all of this, getting the musicians and singers assembled, um, helping Justin sort of, uh, 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 kind of, sh- kind of create this, what became a kind of mammoth 
sort of system. So we had, you know, obviously Mary is also Steve Kaziki, our music supervisor. Just, uh, you know, uh, these and they worked very closely with Steve Morrow, who was our sound, you know, on-set sound mm-hmm. uh, person. And then in the mixing, Nick Baxter did all the music mixing, mixing, and obviously they were working very closely with our film mixers, Andy Nelson and Eileen Lee and their team. So everyone had to be, it had to be this whole kind of fluid organism that was very, everyone always in dialogue um, with Justin uh, and Mary's at the top, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and, and Justin composing everything or, and orchestrating everything entirely himself, uh, which was, you know, it's kind of unheard of. It's the orchestrations are beautiful. Yeah, compo- well, composers very rarely orchestrate their own music yeah. uh, these days. So um, um, another that was another old-fashioned approach in the sense, you know, Justin, his idols are people like... Bernard Herman and Michel Legrand and John Williams and uh, uh, these are not just composers but orchestrators. Yeah. And so, so you hear it's not just the melodies you're hearing; they're very melodic, but you're also hearing a particular soundscape. It's yeah. about choosing which instrument is doing what, and so you hear a little bit of Michel Legrand and you go, "Oh, that's Michel Legrand." It could be no one else. You hear a little bit of Nino Rota or Ennio Morricone, you know it's mm-hmm. them. Um, Just like a, you, you a can pick of, a Steiner or a Herman exactly. at the drop of a hat. There's a lot of scores. I think these days are. Uh, have become much more generic and much more at the service yeah. of just purely at the service of, of the, the, the other elements of the film yeah. rather than being a character in their own right. And I really wanted, obviously, not just because this is a musical, because but because I really think it's the way I want to make movies in general, I wanted to really have the music be a character mm-hmm. in this and be, be part of the reason you went to see it. Yeah, and it, it definitely is mm-hmm. is here. And I, it's like Joe Gershenson, he used to be the arranger up at Universal for decades. Yeah, yeah. And I knew Joe for many years. I just love those old music guys, the you know, film music guys. It's really, it's it's some of the great orchestral music yeah. of the 20th century is, is, is in film. Sometimes unsung, you know. Um, like like sometimes not as heralded as, yeah. as as it should be. And I mean, he took me up there on you know to sound stages many times. Oh, those are, that was my favorite part. Maybe my favorite part of the entire process with this movie was when Marius and Justin um, actually recorded the score. We did it on the Sony sound stage yeah. where they did uh, singing in the rain and literally the same room where they recorded uh, somewhere over the rainbow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just kind what of does that for somebody that loves musicals the way you do the way I, was I do? Pitching myself. Yeah. What? Yeah. How does that like make a kid, kid in a candy shop with a hundred, literally a hundred musicians assembled on the stage playing real instruments, real human beings blowing air into their horns and their reeds? It feels almost anachronistic in today's age, mm-hmm. you know, and wonderfully so. And then with the images, you know, like particularly that final sequence you were talking about, yeah. getting to score that be on the stage, have them assemble, you know, the, the hundred uh, musicians, the 50-person choir, mm-hmm. um, you know, ju- uh, just, and feeling that sound um, with, you know, seeing our images projected on the screen. I mean, it was just like, I was like, okay, great. Well, even if, even if everyone hates the movie, this, this, this makes it all worth it. Because it oh. was just like, it was so amazing being there. Yeah. Pinched myself, yeah. Now, a directorial challenge had to be Working with Mandy and choreographing these huge, the opening number is massive. We don't see that today. So often they'll cut down, if somebody's going to have a dance number, or even a crowd number, they cut it down to a manageable amount of 20 people, 50 people, Mm -hmm. and then CGI in the rest. Yeah, yeah. You had hundreds of people here. Yeah, it was it was about a hundred dancers, over over a hundred dancers, and then obviously a lot of cars. 
And yet, of course, like the other thing that was tricky is that, you know, the dancer you don't see is the camera. And the camera had to be as choreographed as any of the dancers. Mm -hmm. And um, because we wanted it to feel like a single shot. Were you doing handheld on with the cameras or? Not in that scene. No, it was okay. all, that was all crane and steady cam. Okay. That scene, yeah. Um, so it was a lot of heavy machinery up there on an elevated freeway ramp, you know, uh, in a heat wave. So it was, uh, it was like wasn't the most comfortable shoot and yet it, it, you know moment of the shoot and yet it was maybe the most exhilarating mm-hmm. how many takes did you have to do of that one number um we did about a, well it's actually it's three shots stitched together to look mm-hmm. like one and each shot you know would range from 20 to maybe 30 takes mm-hmm. you know um something like that but there were other dance numbers in the movie where, you know, something like Ryan and Emma doing the Hilltop Duet dance at Magic Hour. Well, because of Magic Hour, you only have time for it's a six-minute shot. You have a half-hour window. So we squeezed in about four or five takes, and we did it over two nights. So that's about, you know, I think we probably did maybe nine, ten mm-hmm. takes total over the course of two nights. But then something like, you know, some of the stuff like in the final sequence, in the, in the Dream Ballet sequence, some of the other kind of numbers where we, we could do uh, more takes, um... Yeah, I think we got up into the 40s on some of those wow. bigger dance, dance, long dance takes. Mm-hmm. So Ryan, Emma, all the dancers really had to, they had to be in good shape. <laughs> this was a very yeah. athletic shoot. Well, and, yeah, I'm glad you used the word athletic because as I'm watching Ryan, all I kept thinking is shades of Gene Kelly. If he would pursue dance. Well, Ryan would kiss you for that because he, uh, that's how Ryan and I first bonded over musicals was Ryan is a diehard and has been for a long time Gene Kelly worshiper. He, his moves, uh, it ha- he has that Gene Kelly athleticism. Mm-hmm. And it was so evident watching that, even when he sings, he doesn't have a great singing voice, but neither did Gene. Yeah, yeah. No, this well, I wanted. A, um, well, I, I love, I love, I love both Brian's voice and Gene's voice, but I think of them as exactly as nat- naturalistic voices. Yeah. In other words, uh, it's how I wanted the whole movie to sound. Not belted, um, not um, not kind of uh, not overperformed. That this needed to feel. That was something that I really think is like not talked about that often. But one of the key things of why the old musicals worked is that is that. The singing wasn't so far from the talking. Mm-hmm. They were recorded in somewhat the same way, and they were delivered in somewhat the same way, in this conversational way, so that, you know, nowadays someone starts singing in a movie, and suddenly you hear it's completely different mic. It's, it's, it's auto-tuned and reverbed and compressed to the wazoo, because that's how albums are recorded now. Mm-hmm. And it's belted as though, you know, as though you're, you're a mile away, yeah. even though you're right up close with the camera. Um, that to me is one of the key mistakes that uh, you know. It's just uh, we wanted to. I just had no interest in. Well, that's been, and I think it's because you know, in in the heyday of musicals, people could go in see a musical, they could walk out and they could be humming and singing a song, and they didn't sound that terrible. Yeah, the, the, exactly. The, the, these were songs also that, and that was something that Justin and Marius were really, um, you know, brilliant at was was. Uh, was you know I mean most most every yeah every melody in the movie every song had been uh, completely sort of written uh, before Ryan and Emma came on but then to sort of tailor them to their voices to kind of you know find the right keys to find where the right key changes would be to sort of you know tailor everything mm-hmm. the same way Mandy Moore did with choreography uh, right. choreography have everything be very much speaking to their to their strengths and their particular idiosyncrasies and their little vulnerabilities to kind of tease those out and make it make it inform the music and the dance. Mm -hmm. Uh, It had to be a two-way street. I have two things I have to ask you. Number one, you shot in a smokehouse? 
Yeah. <laughs> you recognize that, yep. I live in the smokehouse. Do you? Yeah, we, we lived there for two days. That was Ryan's Ryan's first day of shooting. It was, it was our first week. We'd shot a little bit with Emma, and then that was Ryan's first day. It was playing that super involved, you know, again, mm-hmm. one single take, uh, 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 you know, all him, no CG trickery or anything. Um, we didn't have a piano double at all mm-hmm. at any, any moment on set. It was always Ryan. So that was, uh, he, he, uh, he had a, he had a very hot day his first day. Well, I can tell you the smokehouse has never looked more beautiful, and I've been going there for over 35 years now. It is a beautiful... uh, Well, I I wanted... I just All I wanted was a restaurant that had that red... uh, You see it, I mean, so to me it feels very L.A., the red booth, the red Mm -hmm. velvet kind of... uh, um, And so we found it in the smokehouse, and then, then, yeah, Linus uh, just did a wonderful job lighting it you oh, know, so it feels kind of dappled and it's beautiful yeah it's beautiful that should be they should like take that image and use that on all of their marketing materials <laughs> let me tell that's you great. maybe we'll get them uh, some extra business not that they need it but yeah that's cool yeah people laughed at me I said, that's a smokehouse they said no i said oh they been? didn't believe you oh, i so said funny. oh trust me yeah trust me i mean we faked the, you know so it's, it's a different exterior that she slips yeah. into but um, no, I. But, but, we, but you, you, you caught, you caught <laughs> us out immediately. Yeah. But so, my last question: What did you learn about yourself as a director, as a filmmaker, in the process of making La La Land? Um. Hmm. I mean, I learned. Uh, I mean, every single thing on this movie felt. A little impossible, you know, and but you just try to have faith that you can get there. And I've always kind of, in theory, at least believed that that's the only stuff worth doing. That you have to set challenges that, if it doesn't seem impossible to pull off, then why bother trying to pull it off? Um, I really do believe in that, and that was kind of the credo every day on set with everyone. Um, but I think I really kind of. So I, I, I guess it's less something I learned. It's more that like this reaffirmed that for me, or it made it real in a way that it always just been this kind of theoretical thing. But obviously there would be other voices in my head saying like, you know, yeah, but maybe you should hold back, or maybe you should, you know. And and um, but you know, I had very you know great supportive producers who were pushing me to anytime they sensed me holding back, they would push me to mm-hmm. to keep at it and even go further. And so I look back now and I'm really glad that we never made things easier on ourselves, that we did try to shoot for the moon, um, and, uh, um, in terms of the technical challenges and the emotional, the sort of tonal challenges in the movie, I'm just, um, there were many moments where we could have taken a slightly easier road, mm-hmm. um, that might have seemed very appealing at the time, and, and we never did, so I, that's the one thing I'm probably the proudest of, and kind of took the most from. And... That was my exclusive interview with La La Land writer-director Damien Chazelle. Um, 14 Oscar nominations. So it's going to be curious to see. Oh, our, our, our big boss, Nick Fedorov, just appeared in the studio here today. I abuse him when his show is airing live, so it's only fair he come and, and you know, abuse me in here. Um, yeah, we do have a big boss here at Adrenaline Radio, for anybody that was wondering. But anyway, no, that was my interview with Damien Chazelle. I adore what he does, his his ethos as a filmmaker, his aesthetic, uh, his design. But uh, La La Land, Oscar voters. However, I will say, 
While everybody else is rooting for La La Land for Best Picture, my heart still goes with Hacksaw Ridge. You heard me say that. uh, I said it in the press conference to Mel Gibson before the film ever came out. Best Picture of the Year. When you look at every single element of a film, Hacksaw Ridge gets my vote for Best Picture of the Year. So all the Academy voters, there are so many worthwhile films this year. I hope you look at all of them. And I hope that this interview with Damien gives everybody uh, a more intimate look at what went into La La Land and what was Damien Chazelle's thought process therein. And yes, for all my classic film TCM peeps out there, yes, I misspoke myself when I said Norma Kalmus. It is Natalie Kalmus, the queen of Technicolor. For whatever reason, you know, my mouth was working faster than my head or my head was working faster, one or the other. Um, but... So I stand corrected on that before I get shot and hung at the TCM Film Festival by people. Uh, So we're going to take a short break. Then after some public service announcements and fun stuff, we're going to come back and talk John Wick, Chapter (laughs) 2. And we are back. Welcome back to the second half of Behind the Lens. Uh, For those of you just tuning in, maybe for the very first time, I'm film critic Debbie Elias. I'm creator and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print, online, on YouTube, around the globe, uh, 24-7. But every Monday, you can find me right here, live on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You know, and for those of you who tuned into the first half hour, you had a rare treat. You actually got to hear virtually an entire single interview uh, that I did with Damien Chazelle rather than being chopped up with little setup pieces and all. You actually got to hear the entire thing in the process, my interview process, if you're not familiar with the show or with some of the other interviews I've been doing the past 29 years. Yes, I'm in my 29th year as a film critic. And it is a joy, and it is a real joy to be able to bring so many young directors, young writers, young and cinematographers, veteran uh, industry stalwarts, uh, and educate, enlighten, and entertain all of you out there. You know, as I mentioned, next week we're going to have... You know, we got a real treat. We've got an in, an in-studio guest for the hour from Formosa Group. We're going to have music editor, Ken Carmen. You know, over the months, you know, Scott Hecker was here. Uh, Mark Mangini, Oscar winner for Mad Max Fury Road last year. Mark was here on Halloween. And then we have Tim. Uh, okay, now I'm blanking on, on Tim's last name. Who was here in the end of December? <laughs> From Formosa, uh, who is the Dolby Atmos specialist in town? Um, but now we're gonna we're gonna hear all about uh, music editing at Formosa with Ken Carmen next week. So you definitely want to tune in for that. We've also got some great st- guests already booked in March, and then hopefully we've got uh, waiting on some confirmation for some big surprises the day after. Oscars and uh, Spirit Award weekend. So, but right now let's let's turn our attention to John Wick Chapter Two, which just opened in theaters on Friday. You know, John Wick marked a return to the action genre after the Matrix trilogy for Keanu Reeves. Um, 
It took the world by storm, developed a huge following, was a box office bonanza. So, of course, we had to have John Wick come back. And John Wick has come back indeed. Originally created by writer Derek Kolstad and director Chad Stahelski, the two have reteamed to bring us John Wick Chapter 2. The world of John Wick is a very specific world. Uh, John Wick is a quote-unquote retired mercenary assassin. He lives in a world that is run by with a moral code, rules, and uh, the hubbub of activity, the peaceable place where assassins of all ethnicities, race, creed, color, religious denominations can get together and just have a drink and talk about what methods they might use for future assassinations is a hotel called the Continental run by a very enigmatic gentleman, refined, named Winston, played by the wonderful Ian McShane. Uh, everybody just fell in love with John Wick and the, and yeah, there is violence. There was, there is a lot of violence in the world of Wick and, you know, for a man who was retired in part one, there are certain things you don't do. You don't mess with a guy's dog and you don't mess with his car. Hands down. That's it. You do that. You steal a car, you kill a dog and he's coming after you, which is exactly what John Wick did in uh, John Wick, the original. Well, now we pick up not too long after John Wick ended with John Wick Chapter 2. The setup of the... Derek Holstad is back writing the script, and of course, Derek picks up, and thankfully, you don't have to see Part 1. You don't have to see the first movie to understand the second movie, Chapter 2, because there's a wonderful opening with the head of the Russian uh, mafia who is basically retelling the story of what a bad guy John Wick is and the lengths that he goes to for things. Uh, the Russian is played by none other than Peter St- uh, Stramari, who is amazing at no matter what he does. So this is where we start with John Wick Chapter 2. And it just escalates from there because even though John Wick thinks he's still retired, in the eyes of other members in this assassin's world, ah, he came out, he caused some damage, he's no longer retired. So people with markers are calling in markers. And one of those is an Italian who wants John Wick to go murder his sister because he wants to sit, be the big boy at the table and not his sister. Siblings everywhere will get that part of the film. And, of course, thrown in there, we've got 141 kills throughout the movie. And every stunt discipline you can think of, from the Machado method of jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu oh, I'm not talking well today, jiu-jitsu, martial arts, to automotive maneuvers that the most trained stuntmen in the world, you rarely see them do it. And Keanu Reeves is doing virtually every single stunt and car trick himself in this film. There are knife fights. There's gunplay. You've got multi-caliber. You've got, you know, multi-knife stylings. There is a climactic scene shot in a hall of mirrors that is worth the price of admission alone. And a lot of the film is actually shot in ruins in ancient Rome, including the baths at the ancient baths at Caracalla in the Piazza Navona. And of course, 
even in the Villa Borghese gardens. And all you perfume connoisseurs out there will recognize Villa Borghese as where the gardens of Amanda Borghese and her great cosmetic and skin line and perfume line comes from. That's Those are the gardens where all of those great fragrances start from. There's your, there's your bit of trivia on Amanda Borghese, and it's tied into John Wick, of all things. So I sat down with, because stunts are such a big part of this film, action is such a big part of this film as one of the elements, I sat down with uh, director Chad Stahelski in this exclusive one-on-one and talked to him, starting with his stunt coordinators, J.J. Perry and, da- and Darren Prescott. You know, Darren used to actually be a double for Arnold Schwarzenegger on and off over the years. He was stunt coordinator previously on John Wick, on Captain America Civil War, on Red Dawn for Dan Bradley, Drive. He also did stunts going, he started his stunt career back on Mars Attacks, uh, Jingle All the Way, Eraser, in the latter two, uh, doing some double work for Arnold, J.J. Perry, an automotive genius, when it comes to vehicular uh, stunt work. And they brought in a whole impressive team, a lot of military vets, for much of the gunplay and handheld. So, of course, the first question that I had to throw out to Chad deals with the stunt team and specifically J.J. and Darren. I have to say, you know, you've got J.J. Perry and Darren Prescott in here. Mm-hmm. Two good friends. As, you know, two of your primary stunt coordinators here. How beneficial is it to you to have guys like that, especially with the multidisciplines of stunts that you have here? You know, you've got Keanu doing the Machado method of jiu-jitsu, which very few people do. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got driving that some of the most experienced stunt guys don't even... Mm -hmm. Don't do. Don't do, but Keanu's doing it. And then you've got, you know, basically you've got all the armament and the weaponry and the fight choreography with guns, and then you intertwine all of these disciplines in the same sequences. Mm-hmm. What does that do to you as a director when you know that you're going to have all of that and you're coming out of stunts yourself? Mm-hmm. You understand the difficulty factor. Mm-hmm. So what is the importance of having guys like this um, who can come on board? I think the way you explained if you took the whole thing that you just said and flipped it, there's something I want in my head, and then it's a deconstruction of what it is. And I think one thing we learned being fairly successful action or second unit directors was interpretation and how to talk. Um, the guy that trained me to be a really good stunt coordinator, a really good um, uh, action director, um, said, you got to learn how to speak a lot of languages. Meaning when you speak to a wardrobe supervisor, he doesn't care how bitching the shot's going to look or how bitching the stunt guy's going to look. He wants to know how many wetsuits he needs, how many things of clothes. So you speak wardrobe to speak them. If you can't communicate to your department heads, how are you going to... I'm not a painter. I don't go brush to, to palette. I have mm-hmm. to go... I have to talk to you. I have to talk to 20 other people. There's probably 500 degrees of separation between what's in my head and what makes it on that screen. I know I want it to be this. I know everything you talked about. I know the fluidity. I know Machado. I know I want drifts. I know I want the motor starting to crash a certain way. I know how I want to shoot them. I, I need to be able to sit down with a room full of people and somehow get that picture onto paper and say, how do I help me get this? Mm-hmm. So I lucked out. I have a lot of great friends that are way better at what they do than I do what I do. <laughs> um, 
So you talk about Darren Prescott and J.J. Perry. Darren, not only is he, I consider him the best of his generation and probably the next two or three in either direction for action direction with vehicles. Darren's highly creative. He tells stories in his stuff. Not only can he shoot great, he can tell a story. I would have no problem giving a first unit cast Mm-hmm. And letting go because he cares about a wig, he cares about lighting, he cares about a dialogue, he cares about accent, he cares about you know the pacing and rhythm of things. He cares about the means and sound of any scene. Uh, JD is very similar, only his background is more martial arts and firearms, mm-hmm. just the specialties. Now, aside from the fact that they're both in the top of their field, they're both my friends, and for whatever reason, I can say two words to Jay. I can say, "Look at the tree." I don't have to say that it's a maple tree or he knows. He knows what tree I like. The same thing with Janice said, look, what I'm trying to get is this whole, the intro of the movie is all sound design. You hear a crash. It's a silent movie on the wall. You know, it's, it's Buster Keaton. It should let you know the joke right off the bat. We're stunt guys having a good time. That's my little, you know, fuck you. We're making fun of ourselves. Um, and rather than come up with a really cool gag, which is I go, I go again, like, look, I need, I need a big opener. And it's the second John Wick movie. We need something big. I want the motorcycle. Come on, slide in one time. And he goes like that. And he's like, I know what you're looking for, but that's not it. And this was literally two days before we shot. We already had the motorcycle. So I'm trying all these different gags. They still weren't as epic as we want. He's like, how about this? We'll hear a crash, and we'll just see a bike spinning out of control. Stunt guy slide on his head. So you didn't see it. He gets up. He goes, oh, my God. Because then you get tension and panic and fear and I'm like everything he said was awesome that's the effect I want duh and he like he got what I wanted and put it in like sandwich it like look I'm gonna do this this and this he's like no no you want three I'm gonna find Taron Butler and three we don't want yeah. they both know what I want whatever way we communicate that is worth ten times more than any technical or logistical skill to be able to relate and be on the same page with people and if they're really smart and really good at the way they do they're going to find a way to deliver you that and that what makes each one of those probably the two best second unit guys out there and indeed they are two of the best out there and you know like chad i fully expect to see both of them jumping up uh into actually directing their own features uh, in the very near future, and of course, for those of you listening, yeah, Steve's finger wasn't. It, Steve's finger was ahead of of, <laughs> of the audio. He tried. He tried. He has two more shots today to get it right. <laughs> but you know, continuing on, Chad typically doubles for Keanu Reeves. He was his double in the Matrix trilogy, and which, by the way, yes, if the, for those of you who have not seen any of the promos or read anything about John Wick, we do have Neo and Morpheus from Matrix Trilogy reuniting as Lawrence Fishburne is also in John Wick. Uh, chapter 2 is the Bowery King. But, you know, I, gotta ask, I had to ask Chad. He's not doubling Keanu. Keanu's out there having all the fun, or maybe not, depending on uh, the body bruises. So, let's hear what Chad had to say about watching rather than acting. How does it feel now when you see the level of action and stunts that he is doing himself and you get to be behind the camera? Do you have that side of relief and say, God, I'm glad that's not me doing that? Um, <laughs> I don't have the glad it's not me thing, but I'm going, I'm proud of what we've created. I'm proud of the stunt team that I've built up over the last 10 years and the choreography process, which I think is my com- mine and my partner's company, 8711. I think we have a process that bar none is the most effective in the industry for making 
uh, one for designing action and two for bringing it to fruition or the execution of taking a cast member and making them into something that they, 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 a very believable action star. And uh, you mentioned 8711. 8711 is a preeminent, preeminent uh, company and group of stuntmen. Uh, and I do believe, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jason Statham actually works out with them when he gets ready for some of his films as well. But, you know, a big part of every film, and as our regular listeners know, uh, thanks to everybody at Formosa Group, is sound. Sound is key in so many films. And in a lot of action films, you miss uh, – there's – a problem with the editing. That's one of the things that's so great about Hacksaw Ridge because the sound, Rob McKenzie, the sound designer and editor, exemplary. You can hear individual bullets. You can hear, you know, armament, breath. Here with John Wick Chapter 2, the same thing. You can hear the swish of certain blades. You can hear the different sounds that the caliber, the different caliber bullets make on firing. And all of this fought, fell under the purview of the wonderful Mark Stackinger from Formosa Group and his team, uh, his, Mark was supervising sound editor, sound editor Michael Head, uh, worked with him and all the guys at Formosa. So here's what Chad had to say. Chad and I talked about with sound on John Wick Chapter 2. Now something that you mentioned that, I'm glad you mentioned it, I was going to bring it up anyway, is your sound, Michael Head, your sound design is just exquisite. Which I have to say is almost accidental. On the first movie, our post-production supervisor, uh, the producer in charge of posting a film, uh, a a very nice man named Michael Tinger, uh, was very good friends with what I consider the best sound designer in the business, Mark Stokier. uh, Second year, sorry. And um, Mark had won the Academy Award for uh, Gladiator. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were just having friends, and Mike kind of asked his friend, would you mind helping out on this little action movie Unbeknownst to us, is Mark was a big fan of classical muscle cars, and he was a gun collector, and so we just had the right little elements of what he found interesting. He's like, "Sure, as long as I can do my own sounds," and we were like, uh, "Sure." <laughs> and he did, and the amazing sounds we got in the first movie for the little bit of time and money we had was great. We built a very good relationship with Mark, so he has an amazing sound design team. I'm mean, talking next, I, maybe one of the best in the business, for sure. I, what Maybe the industry thinks what we think. So when we came the second time around, he's like, you ready to have fun? Because we're going to go a little bit bigger on this one. And the amount of time put on this and the design, down to the, you'll hear dog whimpers and you'll hear coins drop. And you'll hear bullets ricochet off walls that you didn't see. His sound design, I think, is... I, I don't know about the overall film. I don't know about the directing of it, but I know the sound design is equal to anything out there. And yes, the sound design definitely is. And hopefully working on it right now uh, to get Mark Steckinger either in here to Behind the Lens Live or to do a sit down outside so that you can all hear, uh, you know, about, you know, his process and what he brought to John Wick, the the original, and John Wick Chapter 2. Now, you heard me mention earlier the Hall of Mirrors scene. It is climactic. It is amazing. And were it not for the talents of cinematographer Dan Lawston and production designer Kevin Cavanaugh, that Hall of Mirrors sequence would not be what it is. So much of John Wick would not be what it is without the talents of Dan Lawston and the very unique aesthetic that he and Chad have developed for 
shooting and creating this world. Take a listen to what Chad had to say about cinematography, production design, and the Hall of Mirrors. Then you got one of the greatest standout scenes I think I've seen in an action film in decades, your Hall of Mirrors in the museum. How did you and, and Dan Lawson pull that cinematographer pull that off? I mean, painstaking. And let's not forget Kevin Cavanaugh, your production designer. Who deserves, I think, an Oscar for it. I, think I mean, with the, the catacombs, I mean, because you're working in these ancient places to begin with. But then you're also replicating and building things. But the Hall of Mirrors, we're so used to seeing, you know, it's adequately done. You've got lots of mirrors, and somebody will distinguish, oh, there's the real person there, because a button is reversed or, or something. Lady from Shanghai kind of thing or something. Yeah. But here, and it was very prevalent in the 70s in TV. They used to use it all the time. Like, nobody really does it in film because they can't really execute it well. You're doing a 360 here with the, with the mirror images and all. How do you and Dan, especially... With the lighting and the lensing and the reflection coming off the mirrors, how did you go about designing that? Yeah, that was a hard one to sell. <laughs> that was something, that was one of the very first scenes we wrote for, uh, one of the first things that I wrote, when I wrote my synopsis of what we wanted in general too. One of the first things, I think the first thing I was on, I, want, I wanted a rock opera, <laughs> so we put that in, and I wanted something in the Hall of Mirrors. Um, again, that's... Uh, a little tribute to our thing, like a martial art background, so it's Enter the Dragon. So we tried to take what Bruce Lee did with Mr. Han in his mirror room and turn it on its head by a dozen and do a gunfight in there. Um, when I first met Kevin Cavanaugh, was my production designer, was I think the second department head I ended up hiring, um, even before Dan Lawson came on board. Mm-hmm. I sat with Kevin, and Kevin had just finished Drive, which I thought was beautiful in its simplicity. Yeah. And Kevin had been a fairly major art director on a lot of Chris Nolan's projects, like Batman. Right. Um, and just like we talked about with JJ and Darren with the stunts and the action, I literally spent within five minutes. Kevin had come down to my office. We talked for five minutes and never batted an eye, no matter how weird my shit got. He's like, "Yeah, I want to do a rock opera in ancient ruins, and I want to do this mirror room." He's like, "Oh yeah, and right. Okay, so what, how big you want? Didn't miss a beat." And I knew I clicked with him. We spent the next two hours designing that. And cut to months later when we're already into design and I'm now trying to hire my cinematographer. And Dan was on top of a very, very short list. And he was in Copenhagen at the time. And we got on the phone and I was like, look, I know you used to work with Guillermo de Toro. And I was like, my ideas may seem a little bit wacky, but I'm trying to do as much practical work as I can with VFX enhancements or removals. And the minute I said mirror room, I, I swear to God, you could hear him clicking in. And like he was sending me images over Skype of like, oh, we do reflections like this at fun houses. And we'll, what we'll do is we'll warp some of the glasses so we don't have to see this and we'll balance the light this way. And what do you do? Let's build the lights into the sets. We get these new, he told me about this new technology, these LED strips that you see throughout the movie that, okay, fuck it. Let's, let's see the lights and we'll change our color palette from the first movie. And I was like, you can do that. And he's like, yeah. Like, I learned more from Dan Lawson and Kevin Cameron than anybody else in the movie. Wow. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is if you get the right crew, you have a vision and whether you're embarrassed or proud of it, whatever it is, if you get the right people to help you exercise it on the same page or execute it, sorry, um, they all get on board. So no longer is it just my idea. <laughs> 
the ideas are ideas, it's our creation. And uh, to the man, every single, whether it's construction or, or our production design, every single person involved in the development of that mirror room sees it now up on the big screen and goes, holy sh**, we're all surprised that it worked as well as it did. We're all very, very proud of it. So. And, of course, once again, Steve's tried his hardest, and I want you guys to know, I, I typed out the entire transcript of the interview for him. So he's reading along, <laughs> but he's, he's not allowing for breath, for people to take their, the breath, apparently. <laughs> he's trying. We're so sorry. He's trying. But, you know, another key piece, and this may be the last thing that we get to today on John Wick, the editing, Evan Schiff and editing melding the high-octane action, blending two worlds of people who live in the shadows, the homeless under the rule of the Bowery King, and organized assassins. Here's what Chad had to say about editing and Evan Schiff. I've got to ask about, you know, your time spent with Evan Schiff and the editing, because... Another big find. If the editing falls down on this, you lose the entire kinetic pacing. Yep. It was tricky to find an editor. I was very protective. Uh, I had a, a very good experience with um, Elizabeth Belzner uh, from the first movie, but she was with my partner working on the project. Um, I consider myself a bit of an editor as well. I've edited most of my action scenes and stuff. So I'm very, very picky when it comes to that, and I wanted an aesthetic. I didn't want it to be, like we said, like we talked about earlier, I didn't want it to be accidental. I wanted it to be my choice, and I wanted it wide, medium. I call it the inverse pyramid. Wide, medium, tight, tight, medium, wide. So you felt like every scene sucks you in, every scene pushed you away. And I wanted somebody that would embrace what I was trying to do with the action, meaning let it breathe, let it be. I don't want, I, the last word I want to hear from anybody is pacing. I don't want to see speed. I want it to breathe. I, it is an aesthetic. I want to see it. I want to see a picture, beautifully painted, move. That's what we tried to do. That's not easy to find. Yeah. An editor that's just, and I also required my editor and my camera to be all summer rehearsals. Like, they got to sit there and watch what's happening because I want no surprise. I want them to be vested into what's going on. Evan was, he's younger, mm-hmm. hungry. He had worked for J.J. Abrams' company quite a bit. He had done a lot of action. And no matter who I called about him, even though he didn't have a a massive editorial resume as being Yeah, he's editor, at Homeboy 2 for Guillermo and yeah. uh, as a, Rocky as an assistant, he had a, As an assistant. Yeah. And then he had done, I think, um, I forget the, Everly. As the main unit. So it's a very small resume as far as the, the main editor. I got him on the phone, loved everything he had to say. I had never met him face to face. Had done it again, made tons of phone calls. And everyone from JJR's people all around said, This is the guy that fixes stuff. He sees through all the BS. And he gets, like, whatever it is about this guy, he just gets it. And whatever his taste is, it fits. Like, you just gotta, he's the guy you can trust. So we flew out to New York, had one more meeting, and it's like, within, again, same thing, you know, like you first love. Two minutes into the conversation, I'm just like, he's a tough little dude that gets it, and he's got this mind that just sees beyond what you think you should have and goes, and he, like, he, he'll go for the ride with you. So between him, Dan Lassen, and Kevin Cavanaugh, I had a pretty good team. And a pretty good team indeed. And I think, and you know, if for filmmakers out there, especially young filmmakers that might be listening to this, you know, one thing that you can pick up from listening to Chad is that it's people that think outside the box. They understand his vision, but they can then take it and run with it. If you listen to last week's show and part and some of what my interview with Peter Chelsom on the space between us. 
That was that's one of the keys from that film. Also, is having you know somebody such as you know his cinematographer Barry Peterson and a production designer Kirk Petroselli who could take an idea and push it beyond and go beyond. Um, it's a lot of thinking outside the box to put together these films. So that is all the time. It looks like this is all the time we have for today. Steve's nodding his head in there. So I'll be back next week. We will have Ken Carmen from Formosa Group. We're going to be talking music editing next week. And until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 